You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to 10 Hard Questions. I'm your host, David. (laughs) Uh, Good to see so many people out tonight, um, given the rain, and you guys are so wimpy staying at home, nice and warm. Look at everybody here tonight. No, that's okay. Um, Good to see everyone. Uh, We're going to be carrying on in our series. Uh, We are one, two, three, four, five, six weeks in now. And we've looked at some pretty important questions. We've looked at how can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? How can you take the Bible literally? Doesn't the Bible, doesn't Christianity promote violence? Isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQIA+, which is what we tackled last week? And tonight's topic, um, doesn't the Bible condone racism and slavery? So that's going to be our topic tonight, which is a big topic. Um, I want to give you guys a, um, a, uh, a heads up, though, that um, next week we have uh, Dr. David Robinson from Regent College. So it's kind of a, a, um, a joint um, event that's put on by Regent College, which is a graduate school of Christian studies in Vancouver. It's my alma mater and Ivan's alma mater. And it's also, uh, and where Mike is currently at. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we're putting on this event. And, and so the big question next week is a question of providence, is a question of sovereignty. Does praying make any difference, for example? And so the question is, does everything really happen for a reason? And so how do we understand events that take place in the world in light of God? How does God's sovereignty work in the details of day-to-day life? Which I think is a really big question. So we're going to be exploring that um, next week. And then uh, we're just going to tackle a few easy ones on suffering and hell. And and then we'll be uh, almost done, right? So uh, tonight's topic, doesn't the Bible condone racism and slavery? Let me uh, begin with prayer and then we'll dive right in. God of all grace, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness and your presence with us. You're not a philosophy or a worldview or a set of ideas or propositions, but you are personal and you are present with your people. We pray that uh, you would speak to us. Your word teaches us you are a God who reveals. And so we pray that you would speak to us tonight and guide our conversation. I pray for my brother Ivan that you would minister to and through him as we tackle this tough subject. We commit tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me introduce um, my dear friend tonight. Now, some of you, uh, you got to get in the picture, man, because they can't see. Yeah. Here he is. Yay. Ivan De Silva. Now, Ivan, if you've been around CA Church for a while, you'll know Ivan because Ivan has been here for a long time and he's taught many of a course here. In fact, where we used to always teach this uh, teach classes is on this very spot, but it didn't look quite as nice as this. If you remember, it was a 
and old musty portable. That's where we uh, we held a lot of the classes uh, that we that that took place. Uh, Ivan is um, he's been a Christian for almost fifty years. Uh, he's studied the Bible for forty years. Um, he's taught the Bible in university for over thirty years. He uh, teaches at Trinity Western. Um, as well as uh, other colleges. Um, and he's recently co-authored a, um, a major commentary on the book of Proverbs, and he co-authored it with Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkey. And that book came out two years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. And currently he's finishing off another commentary on the book of Proverbs for the Gospel Coalition. And so, yeah. And on top of all this, Ivan has just recently retired because it sounds like that was all his jobs, right? You know, <laughs> professor. No, he had a full-time job. And he's just recently retired, but he spent how many years? 27. 27 years as a detective for the Vancouver Police Department. So, yes, uh, he is what you call a pretty high-capacity guy. Now, Ivan and I uh, and Carol, uh, we've been friends uh, for a long time. We've been friends for uh, 15 years. And and Ivan and I, we've collaborated on a number of teaching projects over the year, over the years. And so I invited him tonight to explore some key questions tonight. Because, well, honestly, he is like way, way, way smarter than I am. So uh, this is an important topic. And so we're going to uh, dive in on the topic of, of racism and slavery. Um, does the Bible condone racism and slavery? Now, the reason why I bring this question up is that many people, if you if you're um, if you're on in the Twitterverse or in in in, in, the, in social media, you'll 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 know that often Christianity is linked to um, colonialism, racism. Um, and there's arguments that say, you know, the Bible, because there's slavery in the Bible, it did, it, it, it's the reason why we've experienced slavery throughout the history of, uh, certainly within the West, but around the world. And one of the solutions that if only Christianity would go away, then we wouldn't have these issues of racism or slavery. Um, what I wanted to do is begin with the, the, the question of, uh, of racism and in particular, just you know, maybe to talk about experience. And so I want to ask you, Ivan, maybe share a little bit about your own background, um, where, you're, where you're born and your upbringing and, and your own experience, whether or not you had experience with, uh, with racism, right? So I'll hand it over to you. And you have to speak very loudly, especially over there, because the sound doesn't carry for some reason. Yeah, I'll try. Everybody can hear me okay? Excellent. Yeah, so I was born in Sri Lanka. And uh, I spent the first five years of uh, my life with my grandmother up in the country because my mom had to work in the city and she couldn't look after me. So uh, I was with my grandmother and she was a Christian and she raised me. And so right from uh, the age of five, I was aware of the uh, gospel, <clears throat> but it didn't actually turn out into a conversion experience until I was nine years old. And uh, when I finally cried out to God and he answered me and I, I realized I was a Christian, that he was my father, that Christ had died for my sin and all of that. Then uh, when I was 12 years old, our family moved to Canada, my uh, mom and dad and my sister. And um, I grew up here in, um, in, in New Westminster. I attended 
New Westminster Secondary School. Um, I had a paper out. I, I uh, joined the Air Cadets and did gliding and all that kind of stuff. It was fun. But uh, yes, in high school, uh, Canada, I think at that time, was going through the, the death throes of the uni or monocultural vision, and multiculturalism was beginning to take center stage. And in that transition process, I think some people found that difficult. And so I did experience some name calling from students and, and all of that stuff, got, got teased about that had to take different routes to school because there were there were kids waiting to beat me up. And um, I lost my front tooth because somebody knocked it out and oh. I had to get a cap in there and, and got called different names and told to go back here, uh, go back to where I came from and stuff like that. So, yeah, but it was mainly <clears throat> concentrated among these kids, you know, uh, teasing each other and so forth. And um, did it affect me? Well, the way it affected me was... Uh, what it what it caused me to do was say, well, I'll show you, you know, because they would say you're just a dumb so and so, and you're just a, uh, a stupid such and such, and go back and so forth. So that kind of got me riled up, and I said, well, I'll show you. And um, I decided I was going to try and make something of myself to prove all these all these things wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I I handled that. Um, uh, so yes, I did experience some hostility in uh, in school but um processing that the way i processed that uh, at the time of course it was it was quite painful to go through but later on as i uh, as i graduated well actually it, it the teasing and everything ended in about grade 11 because then students are starting to get serious about their life and they're no longer interested in teasing you and um, the way I processed that was to realize that, um, uh, talk about the sovereignty of God that you guys are going to be talking about next week, that in God's sovereignty, he allowed this to happen in order to direct my path in a, cer in a certain direction. Because uh, there were really only two places where I didn't feel that... Um, there was a, a sense of people not accepting me. And that was, of course, in my own family. And the other place was the church. Uh, so I, I was in the church right as soon as I came to Canada at 12 years of age. And in the church, I found, an, I found a total refuge. And so um, all the stuff that was happening to me outside funneled me to really go deep into the church. And uh, in other ways, it kept me from joining up with certain gangs and, and getting involved with certain types of kids and so forth, because those are the ones that were, you know, teasing me. So I didn't want to be with them. <clears throat> and so it kept me, I think, somewhere on the straight and narrow and guided me into the church where I was welcome and just um, accepted and loved. And I just got bonded into the church. So now I look back and I see how God had used that in my life to steer me away from some areas that could have been uh, problematic for me and push me into the church and family and so forth. And so here I am. So I see it now as God's mercy, maybe severe mercy, but totally his mercy and grace. I think yeah, that's great. Um, and thanks for sharing that about your own story. One of the questions that comes up, uh, I think, in our in our culture is that 
is that uh, you know the the churches are are you know some some person uh, I believe it was in the states pointed out that on any given Sunday that the churches are among the most segregated places around and in that uh, the churches um you know tend to be um the, the the idea that that Christianity is is a white man's religion and uh is is intimately connected with um maybe nationalism or colonialism um what would you say to that like is is there anything to that or well, I, I'm, I'm sure there is. Um, it's probably a phenomenological reality that there are churches that are like that. But we always have to distinguish between these uh, phenomena of uh, churches and what the New Testament and the Bible envisions as the Church of Jesus mm. Christ. Uh, there is a huge difference then between them. And um, one thing I could probably just say off the top of my head is the New Testament does not have uh, any understanding of ethnic churches, ethnically segregated churches, you won't find a single letter written to a particular uh, a church of a particular ethnicity, right? Uh, even though we know uh, ethnicities are addressed in the letters, Paul in Colossians talks about barbarians and Scythians and all of these kinds of people, and and you have Jews and Gentiles and all of this, but no letter is ever written to a particular ethnic group. There is no letter from Paul to the barbarians or to the um, um, to the citizens of Ethiopia or something like that. It is always to churches in the city, right? The the church, uh, the church of God in Corinth, or the church of the Thessalonians, or the church of the uh, the Philippians, and so forth. And uh, probably the only closest uh, epistle you're going to get to that's maybe directed at a particular ethnic group is the epistle to the Hebrews. But there, that's the exception that proves the rule, because the whole point of that epistle is to get these people not to go into, uh, into their Judaism, but to stay in the church. And Paul's vision of the church is a multicultural cosmopolitan church. There is absolutely no room in his church for races separating themselves mm -hmm. into their own uh, into their own churches, which is something we need to catch up to, because you can drive down in our city, and you will see, you know, the uh, German Lutheran Church, or the Chinese Baptist Church, or the Filipino uh, Evangelical Free Church, or something like that. You'd never find that in the New Testament, right? Uh, let us not address to those kinds of churches. Mm. Paul's vision is that the church is made up of all cultures meeting together at once, and he won't allow them to separate along ethnic lines. Why? Because that is how you know that the gospel is working. Mm -hmm. The gospel, yeah. you, I don't know if, it, if it's just a total uh, a, a church of just the people from the Philippines. I don't know if that is the, the reason they're together is because of the gospel that has brought them together, or if it's their racial similarities that have brought them together. But where you have a church of all of these different races, and especially races that might have historical grudges yeah. against each other, right? Uh, because it's true, races have done bad things to other races. And you can carry these, uh, these um, uh, uh, feelings and hurts and so on and so forth. But in the church, all these races come together and serve each other and uh, love each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do not let that separate them. Yeah. Not, so yeah. that's the vision. Well, and 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 it's interesting. Um. You, so my background when I was doing uh, my doctorate, I was focusing on revival and reform in the history of the church. 
And one of the things that we we discussed is that one of the, the, the surefire signs of a genuine revival in church history is when at the center of revival, you have people from all different backgrounds, mm-hmm. ethnic backgrounds, all different socioeconomic backgrounds coming together under the influence of the spirit and there's transformation. And that's one of the signs of a genuine revival. And I think about one of the things that got everybody's attention, it was quite controversial, was in 1906 in this uh, street called Azusa Street, Mm -hmm. where you had an African-American fellow with blind in one eye in this very small uh, building in the middle of nowhere. And um, all of a sudden you have people, blacks and whites, and this is 1906 in in, in America and in Los Angeles, worshiping together. And uh, and it was a sign of this this tremendous revival that that took place. And I, I think one of the other big factors is a lot of people don't realize the nature of global Christianity. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Yep. No. I mean, if you look at, um, um, if you look at China, for example, I mean, China by, by conservative estimates, it's about 80 million Christians in, in China that there's more, there are more uh, Anglican Christians in Uganda than there are in Europe and North America combined. And so one of the things you need to realize is that if, if you're to look at the nature of the church by the color of its skin, um, there's very, <laughs> there's fewer and fewer white um, Christians. It's, it's, it, as one guy put, he says, God tends to stay pretty close to the equator. He doesn't mm-hmm. play well in Sweden, apparently. <laughs> so that, that's what this one guy said. But, and that's one of the things is a lot of people don't understand the the global nature of Christianity and the fact that Christianity has incarnated in every type of culture, in every language, in every context, mm-hmm. which you cannot say for Islam. You cannot say that for, 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 for other faiths. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to add to that before we shift to slavery? <laughs> yeah. No, the only other thing I would say is uh, the um, uh, there are two ways in which you can do church. You can do it under the, the curse of the Tower of Babel. Or you can do it under the blessing of Abraham. Hmm. Um, at Babel, people uh, were together. They, they were all of the same language and all of that, ethnicity and all of that. And they wanted to, they wanted to honor that and, uh, and celebrate that. But God separated them uh, under a judgment. And they broke up into the different races. This is the biblical explanation for the rise of nations and so forth. And then these nations were separated. And each nation is, was fighting for dominance over the other nations and so forth. And the answer to that is the calling of Abraham, where God says to Abraham, you know, up and go from your country and all of that. And then says, uh, makes a bunch of promises to him. And the last one is the climax in promise is through you, all the nations will be blessed. So that through Abraham, God is going to make a nation of the other nations and bring them back together. And they will be made up of all uh, representatives from all the nations. Mm. So that and the church needs to be reflecting that if it is in an area where that is true. Now, of course, if you're in some prairie German town, okay, the church is going to be made up of Germans. That's just the way it is. But if, if you're in a cosmopolitan area and you're still segregating yourself, I think that is very problematic. Mm. And it's a tremendous vision in the book of Revelation yeah. of the nations gathered. From every tribe, language, yeah. and nation, and land, and so forth. Cool. Okay, well, let's shift gears. And I just want to point out one of the uh, 
really important comments that we've we've heard from uh, the people online is um, was more of a question: is that how how can you look so young and be retired? So that's another question. <laughs> Seriously, he looks too young to be retired. Yeah, probably. But uh, I have a skincare regimen. Oh, that <laughs> seems a little peace. Uh, little first asthma, I just say peace with God. Yeah, peace with God. It's not working with me. I don't have a lot of peace with God. Okay, let's shift uh, gears to the question of slavery. Um, now, a lot of critics of Christianity have pointed out that Christianity supports slavery, um, that it, it, it condones slavery. And in particular, there's two areas, I mean, obviously, in the Bible that they, they, uh, they, they point to, but one would be the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, there's, there's, the argument goes is that there's slavery all throughout the Old Testament. And that it tells us something about God. What does uh, what does our man uh, Richard ha- uh, da- uh, Dawkins, the uh, the uh, the atheist, say about the God of the Old Testament? The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a pretty unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal. Pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I wish you would tell us what he really thought, though. Um, I mean, but part of this, part of the, I know the criticism is he'd say, you know, even the the uh, the picture of slavery is it's 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 promoted in the Bible, and that's why a lot of people say I don't have time for the God of the Bible. So, how would you respond to that? Right. So the question I, I take it is, you know, is slavery condoned? in the bible the um, um the bible is a profoundly complicated book <clears throat> and before we get to these hard questions like um does the bible support this or support that in, in fact all these questions that you're dealing with we have to settle on an accredited method of reading and interpreting the bible you know what paul told young timothy uh, about rightly dividing the word in 2 Timothy 2, he talked about that. And so we have to, first of all, understand how do we read these texts and understand them. It is once we get that established that then we can ask the question, then what does the Bible say about these particular questions? On this question, the best place to start is not with the, uh, not directly with the, with the issue of slavery, but to go to another place where Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, when they came to trap him by asking him the question whether it is permissible for a, for a man to divorce his wife, because in the in the way that Christ handled that controversy, controversy, we have principles that are applicable to this question, I believe. Right. So the Pharisees come to Jesus. This is in Mark ten, Matthew nineteen, and they ask Jesus a question: Is it is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, of course, what they're doing is they are quoting from uh, the law, the law book in in Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, "Well, what does the what does the law say?" And they say, "Well, Moses permitted a person to divorce a man to divorce his wife as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce." And Jesus, then what Jesus does is very interesting. He says, "I'm not interested in what the law says at this point." What I'm interested in is what was God's original intention for humanity? What was the original intention? And so he takes the Pharisees back past past Deuteronomy to Genesis chapter 2. 
and he quotes the creation and marriage text to them and say, you know, uh, God created um, humans as males and females. And it's for this reason that a man will leave his uh, uh, mother and father and be united to his wife and the two shall become one. And therefore what God has joined together, let nobody put, uh, put divide, separate. So that, that answer is the, the answer that gives us the model on how we should deal with all of these questions, really. Because what Jesus is saying is, before we go and uh, deal with what the law says, we have to go to the original creational intention of God for humans. The law came in after, uh, after, the, uh, after humans had sinned and fallen and become corrupted. And what the law does is it mitigates the excesses of human sin. But the, the original intention is revealed in Genesis. And so when you, get, when you ask this question about the, the Bible and slavery, does the Bible condone or support slavery? Uh, the, 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 the answer is, well, what happened, in, what happened in, in the creation? Did God create human beings and bless them and tell them to multiply and then to enslave each other and have slaves? Absolutely not. God said God intended them to be free, to, to worship him and to honor each other and to serve each other. That was the original intention of creation. There was no intention there that people would own others as slaves and, and benefit from their service and uh, without really paying them and stuff like that. So there are many laws in the Old Testament that, that deal with slavery, but all they're doing is regulating a practice that already exists and, uh, and putting limits on its excesses and in many ways, the laws in the Bible about slavery are very humane in how to treat these people. And, um, uh, and, and in that way, the Bible does not support it. There is no command in the Bible that says, have slaves, or uh, you're able to get slaves. There's nothing like that. There's no command where God commands people to get slaves. All it is doing is regulating a practice that is already there. Uh, and, and it's exactly on the same uh, on the same level as just because uh, the Bible has laws on divorce, uh, it, it, we cannot from that argue that God commands divorce, or just because the Bible regulates polygamy, that God intends people to have more than one wife. You you can't argue that way. Uh, it would be ridiculous. You have to go to the original intention and from there work 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 your way forward and then see what is going on. So these laws are regulating a practice that was prevalent in the ancient world. Everybody, every culture, every nation had some form of uh, slavery, and so did Israel. And God is saying, but in your case, if you own slaves and you have them, this is the way I want you to treat them. So that's how that's what I would say about that. If you have any specific text in your mind that you want to raise, maybe we can do that in the Q and A. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, no, the Bible does not condone anywhere slavery. Uh, it does not command slavery. It permits it. I would say even tolerates it, and it regulates it in the Law of Moses. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned to me when you and I were, were talking about uh, the specific understanding of slavery, because 
when a lot of people are, are, are critical of, um, you know, does the Bible yeah. condone slavery? What they have in mind most of the time is an understanding of slavery that is informed by the primarily the 18th, 17th century African slave trade. But you had mentioned that this slavery in the ancient world, yes. in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament, is 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 looks different. Can you explain what? Oh yeah, totally different. Yeah. So this is where we have to do exegesis and not eisegesis. I'm sure David has mentioned those words to you at some point. And there's this scholar coming out in me where I have to bring in these these words. Unfortunately, um, uh, exegesis is where you go to the text in order to find out what the original intention of those texts were, the original author's intention, and um, it, it comes from. Two Greek words meaning to lead out the meaning that is in the text. Okay, the opposite of that, the exact opposite of that, is eisegesis. E i s e g e s i s. That is where you lead into the text your meaning uh, or current meanings into the text, and that is never a good idea. So, uh, you, as you know, the Bible can be used to support any um, idea, any ideology, any crazy. Um, action or whatever you can you can find a text to to justify it, but when you're doing that, you are doing eisegesis. You're not doing exegesis. So the same thing with the slavery. We have to take, we have to go to the Bible uh, and say what did they mean by this practice, and not import our meaning of slavery or what a what a slave was and our experience of what that is onto the biblical characters and the biblical world. In the case of uh, slavery in North America and the British Empire and so forth, it was strictly along racial lines, and there was um, uh, incredible dehumanization, and there was uh, oppression and uh, horrendous evil that went along with the practice. There was kidnapping of people involved in from the African nations, forcefully being being transported across the oceans and so forth, slaves having no rights and all that kind of stuff. And so we that's what's near to us, right? That is what we are most familiar with. It's its all around us in our culture. And so we want to bring all of that and read all of that into the Bibles. Um, uh, whenever the Bible talks about slavery, that is, what we, that is what we tend to do, to bring those ideas into the Bible and read what the Bible has to say about slavery in terms of our experience of the kind of slavery that we experienced in North America and the British Empire. But that would be a tremendous mistake. Slavery in the Old Testament was never along racial lines. Okay, there was no racial component to it at all. <clears throat> I, uh, and this was right into the Greco-Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. It was not based on racial issues. The there were two types of slaves in the Old Testament. That is Israelites, Israelites who became destitute and couldn't support themselves. And they sold everything to 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 make ends meet, and finally they had they had they had to sell the last thing that they had, which is their bodies, to some other Israelite, and work for food. That's one type of slavery: Israelite selling himself to another Israelite um, as a slave, a servant, uh, for for their service and for for their upkeep. The other type of slavery was foreigners. Foreigners uh, could also be, be owned by Israelites, and they were treated a little bit differently. There's no doubt about that. The, uh, the law commanded the treatment of an Israelite slave, um, probably in a little bit more gentler 
gentler fashion than it did the foreigners. For example, an Israelite slave need only work for six years, and then he was given the opportunity for freedom. And if he did not want it, then he could, and if he, if he preferred to stay with his master, then there was a ritual that they went through uh, involving the priest and so forth and the, the piercing of the ear. And then that person became a permanent slave to the master, but they were allowed to go free. Foreigners were, were not allowed to go free, but uh, they were treated humanely. They were, they were protected, they were provided for, and the law guaranteed that, uh, that you could not abuse them physically or in, in any other way. What we must remember here is when we're reading the laws of the Bible, we must remember a very important hermeneutical principle. The Ten Commandments are what we would call apodictic law. That means that is the divine intention. That is the divine law. That is the absolutely authoritative law that is laid down for God's people. And it is true uh, pretty much uh, uh, universally, in all places, all times, that law is valid. All the other laws after that are what we, are what we would call casuistic law or case law. Okay, So the laws in Leviticus 25, the laws in Numbers 21 on slaves, the laws in Deuteronomy on slaves, that's case law. But case law is always subordinated to and must be interpreted in the light of the apodictic Ten Commandments. Okay, So the Ten Commandments said, you will not murder. And it doesn't specify who, it just specifies you're not allowed to murder another person. And the reason, if you want the reason, you can go to Genesis chapter eight and nine, because every human is created in God's image. Therefore, that law said you cannot uh, just kill a slave if you wanted to, okay? And it, uh, th that, that law said you have to give your slaves holidays, all the holy days of Israel, the Sabbath and so forth, the slave, uh, also gets, um, the, the slave must be, uh, you, so the fact that you could not commit adultery also meant that you could not, uh, if you were married, you could not then go and have sex with the slave and treat the slave as property, as a sexual object, because the Ten Commandments said to the Israelite male, do not commit adultery. So that original law, that apodictic law, guided the whole rest of the law, and even though you have specific laws dealing with slaves, they must be seen in the light of the Ten Commandments and how that, that vision of humanity and um, God's, God's uh, intention for humans. I don't know if that answers the question fully or not. Now, um, just uh, Nadia's asking a, a couple of good questions online. Um, so, okay. Uh, I mean, by the time you get to Jesus. Uh, we yep. have Jesus who's, you know, who's setting the captives free, right? Through his life, death, and resurrection. Um, he rescues us from sin. Uh, he, is, he is our exodus and leads us um, out of slavery. That's the language that's used into freedom. So wh why doesn't Paul, for example, because uh, he does a lot of writing about household codes. He talks about husbands and wives, talks about uh, fathers and their and their and their children. And then he addresses slaves. Why doesn't he say slaves? You know, slavery is 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 wrong. And slave masters, you need to let your slaves go free because this is just very clearly wrong. Why doesn't um, 
apologists come out and condemn slavery if it's so wrong. Right. I'll give you two uh, answers for that. The first thing is because the Bible is not establishing utopia on earth. Uh, we have to get that clear. God is gradually transforming the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of his, uh, of his God and of his Christ. Um, it is a slow process of transformation. And what God is doing is working his gospel as leaven that works slowly to leaven the whole batch. God is not interested in imposing all the, the, the values of, of uh, the kingdom instantly upon humanity at any given time. One day, that will be the case that you can read about in Revelation 21 and 22, that vision of where we are going. But in the meantime, we have to live in the tension of the already and the not yet, right? So uh, that tension basically that says, yes, we are already saved, but not yet are we fully saved. And this also helps us answer why some Christians will support slavery, okay? Uh, just because you become a Christian, you're not instantly perfected. And so what I would say is these Christians who support this are tremendously uh, wrong. They are, they, are, they are believing false doctrines, but hopefully they're in the process of learning better and so forth. So that's the first thing I would say. Paul and none of the gospel writers are interested in uh, imposing a kingdom in its, full, uh, in its full dimensions and ethical implications instantly upon society. That's my first answer. The second answer, I'll give you five points about the New Testament, what the New, Te New Testament does with slavery. Uh, these are, I see a book there by Peter Williams. Excellent scholar, has done great work uh, even on this subject. So I'm going to give you five things that he points out. afterwards if you're interested. So. Yeah, sorry. Right, no problem. So here's the problem. Uh, even if Paul wanted to set all the slaves free, he could not do it because... Well, first of all, Christians were a marginalized society. They did not have political power at that time to go in and change laws and so forth. Uh, they were they were a persecuted minority for the for the most part. They didn't have political power. They did not have political office. They did not have that kind of leverage by which they can alter and change society's laws uh, to make them more conform to God's will. Uh, and even if they did, the Roman law was very clear on slaves. They had, they had, they had very clear laws on slaves. And one of the laws stated exactly how a master could release his slaves. And so if you had three slaves, you could only release two at a time. And if you had um, uh, 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 four to ten, you could only release one quarter of them or one half of them. I can't remember. You can, you can actually look this up. And then if you had from 11 to 30 you could release, I think, something like 50 or 60% of them free. So even if you wanted to, if, if, if a master had 30 slaves and he wanted to let them all go free, he just could not. The law did not allow it. And then for Paul, to, for Paul then to call for the slaves to rise up in rebellion and throw off their, their, their fetters and, and uh, claim, claim some sort of freedom would have, would have meant, meant instant death for those slaves. The, the, the Romans, if, if the slaves had risen up against the empire, the Romans would have won that battle hands down. They already did uh, in the time of Spartacus. And it's crucifixion, right? It's crucifixion. And it was crucifixion. It was crucifixion. You're crucified. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the punish punishments of rebellious slaves. So that would not help the churches to do that. So what does Paul do? And, and the writers of the apostles, uh, uh, the, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, they do something far more 
powerful. And let me read these points. So if you can't simply free the slaves um, and make slavery cease to exist, what they could do was make slavery cease to exist within the walls of the church. That they could do. That they could do. And that is what they did. And it's amazing when you really think about it. So first of all, how did they do that? How did they make slavery pretty much obsolete, irrelevant, non-existent within the walls of the church? Well, Jesus started it off when in John 13, he said, behold, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Now that commandment alone gets rid of slavery right there. Because you're supposed to love each other in his community the way he loved you. And how did he love you? By becoming a slave and dying for you. Serving his uh, uh, serving people and dying for them. So if, 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 if you're following that and you're following Jesus in that, there's no way you can command and, and, and um, be master over slaves if you're serving them and willing to die for them. So that was the first thing. And, uh, and as a result of that, secondly, because uh, Jesus died and created the church, they recognized that all members of the, of the faith were brothers and sisters in Christ with God as their father. That Jesus had created a new family and the, the, the fundamental relationship between each other is that of family members, of brothers and sisters with each other. And so that eliminates slavery right there. Uh, uh, you're my brother, not, not my slave. And that person is my brother, not my master. So that's the second way in which they did it. Thirdly, the New Testament instituted a kissing campaign. This is Peter Williams's terms. You know, five times in the New Testament, the church is commanded to greet one another. It's a command, by the way. Not a suggestion, but it's an imperative. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So stick around. Holy kiss. Okay. And if you want the text, I'll give them to you later. This is a massively countercultural and subversive event, act. Because not uh, ancient people did not go around kissing each other. You probably heard that. The, the, the Eastern communities greet each other with a kiss. Yes, they do. But only family and people who are equal to them. Okay, And that is the difference. In the church, you kiss each other, uh, greeting each other with a holy kiss, all across every sort of line that you can imagine. In the culture, there is no way a master would ever kiss a slave, or a slave kiss a master, or a Jew kiss a Gentile. But in the church, they were commanded to do that. And just in that alone... The, um, the uh, Paul has eliminated these distinctions. <clears throat> you kiss your equals, but the church instituted compulsory kissing all across the uh, racial and, and, and economic and every possible line you can think about. And the kissing here is not sexual. That's not bringing a fallen nature into this issue. It was to radically enact the equality of believers. Okay, And so if you have to do that today, if we're going to have a kissing campaign today, the first person you should kiss is somebody that you really don't want to. Then you're fulfilling. It's going to be really awkward afterwards. <laughs> then, then you're fulfilling 
the intent of this command. Oh, that's that's good. Yeah. Um, and then fourthly, the fourth point: the New Testament commands uh, commands masters and slaves in very specific ways. Ephesians six, Colossians three, especially Ephesians six verse nine: masters treat your slaves in the same way. What does that mean? In the same way of what? In the same way Christ treats the master. Uh, in the same way the master w- would like to be treated. Okay. And uh, Colossians says the same thing. Uh, and also in Ephesians, this is what it says. Treat your, um, your, your slaves uh, as equals and don't threaten them. Right? Now that's an argument from lesser to greater. If you're, if you're not even allowed to threaten a slave, you certainly are not allowed to um, uh, hit them or abuse them or kill them, right? If you can't even threaten them, then how much more can you not do these other things to them? Mm-hmm. In Colossians 4, Paul commands the masters to give their slaves what is right and what is equal, meaning treat them as your equal. And then here, I think, is the most important point. What is Christianity? Well, let me suggest to you, it is a new nation. It is a new nation. What Jesus and the apostles instituted in instituting the church was not simply instituting another institution. Sorry about that. But another society within society. An alternate society within the existing society. I hope you get what I mean. One of the most important ways in which we must view Christians and Christianity is that Christianity is a new nation, a new country, a new society that God has existed, uh, God has caused to exist within the existing nations and countries and societies of the world. Christianity is a new nation within existing nation. And the word Christian means, another term for Christian would be citizen of the nation of Christianity. You know, so if they ask you at the border, uh, what's your what's your nationality? What's your citizenship? You could arguably say Christian. But I don't suggest you saying that (laughs) or filling your passport. Uh, You know, when you ask for nationality or citizenship, I belong to the nation of Christianity. So (laughs) faced with the inability to change the laws of society. Christians started their own society with its own laws Mm. and its own regulations. And in those laws and regulations, there was no owning, uh, buying, selling, owning, mistreating of slaves. Mm. Okay. That's good. You were treated as equal. Do do you want to just, I know that there's some people that think, um, some scholars have pointed out that one of the, the greatest um, letters that led to abolition would be the book of Philemon. Would, would that be true? Oh, yeah. Philemon has a lot to say, right? Because look what's very look, short. Look how Paul, you know, um, Paul is being very passive aggressive in Philemon. <laughs> because um, what he says to Philemon is, uh, uh, you know, uh, or Philemon, right? What is it? Philemon or Philemon? So um, he has this runaway slave that um, ran away from Philemon and Paul found him and converted him. And now Paul realizes he must send him back to Philemon because Roman law required that. But he sends him back with instructions to Philemon, who's also a Christian that Paul knows very well, probably one of Paul's converts, with a letter saying not to receive 
Philemon back as a slave, but as a brother. Mm-hmm. That's huge. But, but as a brother. And um, and here's the, here's the passive-aggressive part. That letter was supposed to be read out to the whole church. Okay? It was meant to be read out for the, to the whole church. So the whole church gets to hear Paul addressing Philemon. Brother, you got to accept this guy as a brother and not as a slave anymore, which is intentionally, you need to release him. Okay? And so if Philemon continues that way, well, the whole church knows what he's doing, right? And whether he's following Paul's directions or not. So yes, Philemon was very important. And here's the other thing about the Bible. You know, many people say the Bible supports slavery. Well, it's a funny thing, isn't it? That even in the uh, the release of uh, or this, the anti-slavery movement that took place in the South and so forth, it was the Bible that was the fundamental document of, of liberty. Right? It was the Exodus story. It, uh, that is where they got the vision for the liberation of slaves. And that is what they held on to. They wrote songs about it. They wrote songs about the Exodus. You know, go down, Moses, go down to where your people are and let my people go. That's all from the Bible. That's what gave them the impetus to, to seek their freedom and for the, uh, the others to fight for the freedom of the, uh, the slaves. So far from uh, commanding slavery, the Bible is what gives you the the vision to fight it mm-hmm. and the ammunition to fight it. That's what I would say. No, that's good. I mean, one of the guys, um, he's a historian, Mark Knoll, writes a very interesting book about um, the Civil War. And because uh, you have people in the North and the South, both using the Bible to one to support slavery, one to counteract uh, right. slavery. And so that's often used as, look, you know, the Bible's, you know, it's, it's unclear, it can support slavery. But Mark Knoll makes a very interesting point. He says uh, the issue was, is in the South, um, they were, it goes back to our, our conversation a few weeks ago. They're reading the Bible literally rather than literarily, which is what we were talking about. And in the North, they were they were reading it literarily. But in the South, they didn't want to hear it. They just said, well, if there's slaves in the Bible, therefore we should have slaves. But they weren't reading all the things that Ivan has just been laid out. But in the North, that was a case that was being made. And so Mark Nolan, in this book, he says, you know, what's behind the Civil War, a lot of us behind the war, um, was this crisis of theology of what happens when you read the Bible poorly rather than reading it well? It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating argument. Yeah, uh, just to just if I if I can begin yeah, John, that yeah, comment. Sure. When we are reading the Bible, we have to make very clear uh, when we are reading a particular passage to ask the question: Is what is being described here descriptive, or is it prescriptive? Right. Mm-hmm. I hope you get that difference. There is a lot in the Bible that is describing the way things were and the way things went and the way things were done. But that is not prescriptive, meaning that is not telling us then you should go and do the same. Okay. So if 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 a girl can't find a husband to have babies with, then sleep with your dad like like, uh, Lot's daughters did and get uh, that's described in the Bible, but that is in no way prescriptive so that. Today, that is the way a single uh, girl should try and try and get children if she can't find a husband. It's there, but that's not what mm-hmm. it is prescribing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We have to make that distinction. There are other things yeah. in the Bible that yeah. uh, that are described, but we are not. They intended to teach us 
what fallen nature is like, probably. Well, and that's why we need to read the Bible for all it's worth. And that's why we need to understand the different genres and how the Bible's written, to whom it was written, because the Bible um, is not written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. And so you need to understand who the recipients, what's going on. And this helps you understand and read the Bible well. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can go off like in the South and, and during the 19th century and come up with all sorts of understandings about you know, um, about uh, blacks, about slavery, about, you know, um, what is permissible and what's not permissible, but it all comes from a misreading of scripture. Right. Um, now, in the, I would say what one last thing is that the, the key, and, and you already touched on this, I mean, the, the key impetus towards abolition in the South was uh, African-Americans reading the Exodus narrative, right? Reading the stories of how how God set his people free. Uh, Certainly that was the the case with um, the Clapham sect, William Wilberforce in the 18th Mm -hmm. century. They they drew from the passages of scripture that that pointed out that we are made in God's image and therefore of dignity and value. And uh, human beings should not be slaves. And so there's guys like William Wilberforce um, a former slave, Alauda Equiano, who was a very important uh, thinker, Hannah Moore, and this group um, were, were quite catalytic to bringing about the end of slavery. And one of the key things that they would do is they would invite people over. This is in the 18th century in England. They would invite you over and to, to make their case, they'd say, well, why don't you have to share a, a bowl of soup with me? And we'd, we'd have soup together and you get to the bottom of the bowl of soup and there'd be a picture and it'd be an African slave saying, am I not a man and, a, and your brother? Mm-hmm. And that would be staring at you when you finished your soup. And they, they, they use different uh, different ways to, uh, to support that. Um, now, what I'm going to do is do a major shift right now. And the major shift is I'm going to take us back to the Old Testament. But I want to address a question that has come up a number of times over these weeks. Uh, I've been getting emails and even um, I think even tonight uh, we we got the question again. And that's this question. And it concerns the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament just seems very, very violent. And, and you see a lot of violence in the Old Testament that God seems to be behind. There's many examples of this, but one of the examples that, that trips a lot of people up is what is often called the, the genocide or the Canaanite genocide, where Joshua goes in to conquer the land and in doing so wipes out a people group. And so is that not a picture of how God is a God of violence and leads to these sorts of atrocities in history because it's in the Bible. Hmm. How would you respond to that? All right, that's a big one. And the, the, I'm so glad I'm here. <laughs> uh, uh, tackling this issue, you have to coordinate a lot of texts uh, in order to really get an understanding of what is going on here. Now, you use the word genocide. Uh, I've heard the word genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, annihilation of a a whole race. That is absolutely not what is going on. God is not a racist. He does not want the Canaanites destroyed because they are Canaanites, because of their ethnicity. That is not the reason why he wants the Canaanites to be conquered and eliminated of the uh, of the promised land it's not racial hitler wanted the jews to uh, to be uh, he wanted to get rid of the jews because they were jews 
right? And it didn't, it didn't matter what you had done. Uh, I read an account of where one of these Jews that they were marching off to the forest to shoot an old man. He said, I fought in World War I and I've had, I, I won the, the highest medal of bravery for Germany fighting for this country. This is my country and I fought. And here's, here's, he showed him all the medals and everything. They just took him and shot him anyway, right? Because he was Jewish. That is not what is going on with the Canaanites. It's not ethnic cleansing. It's not a genocide. It's not racial purity. It has nothing to do with that. So what does it have to do with? By the way, how do we know it's not that? How do we know that God is not against Canaanites just because they're Canaanites? Because any Canaanite that wanted to was embraced and accepted into the covenant of God. Okay, uh, We know the story of Rahab, right? Here is a Canaanite woman, and she is marginalized in so many ways, and there are question marks all over her. She is a woman, first of all. She is the town local prostitute, and she's a Canaanite. But what happens to her when she confesses faith? In Joshua chapter 2, she has that amazing faith confession that she says to the, to the two spies before they, before they lie down to bed. You should read that, her confession that we, I know the God of Abraham is with you and has given you this land. So now remember me. She is saved. Her and her whole family is saved. And how saved is she? Is she just a little bit saved and allowed to, allowed to live on the outskirts of Israel? No. Because if you jump to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, who is one of Jesus' grandmothers? That woman, Rahab, right? So she married into the leading tribe, and to, uh, Judah, and to the leading family in that tribe from which Jesus descended. That's how incorporated she was. And you, you can go back further and you can read about Tamar, who's also a Canaanite. You can read about Bathsheba. Matthew actually includes these four women, right? Uh, Ruth and so forth, that were included in the people of God uh, upon their confession of faith in God. So why did God tell uh, Moses and Joshua to go in and wipe out the Canaanites? Simple answer is because of their sin. Sin. It is to do with judgment. The time of their judgment has come, and God is going to get uh, execute justice upon the Canaanites for the for their many sins and corruption of the land. When God gives land to a people, by the way, you realize God is the owner of all the land upon the earth. Because he created in Genesis 1-9, the Lord said, let the dry ground appear. So the whole earth does not belong to Aboriginal peoples. Firstly, it belongs to God. It is God's land. And he gives it to people so that they can exist on it in a system known as today, Usufruct. Okay, that's a German word meaning you're allowed to you're allowed to live and use the land so long as you behave properly in it. And if you think about it, if you rent a place, that's exactly the principle you're you're renting that place on. You rent it out to tenants, and you have an agreement that you can be uh, you can live in this place as long as you treat it respectfully. But if you go and you find out that they've turned it into a meth lab, okay, uh, while while you've been away, you're going to kick them out cleanse the place, and give it to better tenants. So that's what's happening with the Canaanites. The Canaanites have misused the land. They have corrupted it to the nth degree. And God has been patient with them. How do we know he has been patient? Because way back in Genesis 15, when Abraham asked him, you know, what about the land? Am I going to get any land? What did God say to him? 
No, actually, you're not going to get any land. You're not going to get a square inch of land. The fourth generation is going to get the land. And this is what's going to happen to your people. They're going to go into Egypt. They're going to be in slavery for 400 years. You can read this all in Genesis 15. But in the, I'll bring them back 400 years later. And then they will come and they will take the land. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? The Amorites is just another term for the Canaanites. They, uh, in God's grace, they haven't sinned to the point of elim needing elimination yet. Okay? And God never judges before the time. And some people get worried, annoyed about that. You know, God, when are you going to bring judgment on these people? How long do we have to wait? Well, God is patient. And so for 400 years, he waited. And what did the Canaanites do in the meantime? Did they use that time to, to reform themselves? No, they didn't. They got even worse. And so finally, when Joshua, uh, in the time of Joshua, Joshua will be God's sword. The, the Israelites will be God's army to wreak God's vengeance upon the Canaanites for all that they have done to the land. Two texts for you. Do we have time for two texts? Of course. Or three. Yeah, yeah. That somebody else just asked that. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, um, in that culture, you were seen as units, not as individuals. We tend to see each other as individuals, but in that culture, you were all together. And as the family went, so the children went. No, they were all counted as part of the family. That's how they did, yes. He works with, pardon? He must have, because he said, he said go ahead and, and wipe them all out. I, I, have no other, I have no other way to explain that other than that, under the fact that he was treating them all. Uh, children are not considered uh, separate from the family. In, um, uh, and we do that today, but they were not considered separate from the family. They were all part of the family. And this happened not only with the Canaanites, but it also happened with an Israelite family. If you remember the story of Achan, who was uh, a member of the tribe of Judah, so the, the, leading, the leading tribe, and he sinned, okay? Uh, what did God say to the Israelites? They took him, his wife, and his children, and they were all stoned and executed. Right, and we could say, well, what about the what about the children? They the children hadn't done anything wrong or whatnot. Well, we can have those, we can ask those questions, but the text is what the text says, and I'm not here to apologize for God. He asked, he 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 required the whole family. In fact, not only that, but in the law of Deuteronomy, if a, if a, a, a child uh, corrupts the family, the child is to be executed. Okay. That changes later. Yes, under the under the um, covenant of Jeremiah. Pardon? Oh no, no, he he does not change, but his treatment of us absolutely changes, depending on our circumstances and progressive revelation. Revelation is progressive. And um, God is establishing his kingdom, as I said, slowly. And so new things come to light. And um, he, treats, uh, he treats people differently under the new covenant than he did under the old covenant. 
and all of those and all of those things. Like if in the new covenant, um, the church is not even allowed to execute anybody, right? They they are allowed to excommunicate, but they're not allowed to execute. But in the old covenant, the the nation of Israel was supposed to execute people. Good questions. Yeah, that was a great question. Tough, but do you have a question over there? So Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, in the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus chapter twenty. We yeah. can look at that verse. It's actually uh, it's actually a tricky verse. So uh, let me just quickly read it because what it says is, it will go down to the third and fourth generation of the children that hate God. Uh, Exodus. No, I mean Genesis. Is Exodus after Genesis? I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, sorry. So, we'll just repeat the question. Uh, so we're looking at Exodus 20 because there's that passage where it talks about um, the sins of um, uh, the sins going to the fourth generation and the mm. punishment going to the fourth generation and the the blessings to the thousands generation. So what is that all? What's, what's that all about? Uh, so Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, the giving of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to an idol and uh, serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay, That descriptive clause is the key. The, the children of, up to the third and fourth generation of those. Who is the those? That's what you have to find out. What is the antecedent of that pronoun, those? And what I'm going to argue is that those is the children who also follow in the parents' disobedience and sin. Okay, That is the those. Now, it is a fact that as, uh, as and statistics will bear this out, as parents go, so do their children. They're, they're, the, um, if, the, if their parents are atheists, it's a very high possibility that the children also will grow up as atheists. Of course, there are exceptions to that. And so, yes, if you have a corrupt, um, if you have corrupt parents, it is it is a very li great likelihood, especially in a culture like that, where, where, where children were so dependent on their parents, that the children also will grow up to embrace their, their parents' corruption. Mm. Okay? So that is how I read that text. But getting back to the... Um, the question of um, the Canaanites. The um, <clears throat> the first text I would like to point you to is Deuteronomy chapter nine, and then Leviticus eighteen. Deuteronomy nine. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Uh, verse four. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. In verse 4, do not say in your heart, <clears throat> after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that is the Canaanites, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. 
not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? So it is not because of your righteousness or anything like that. It's not because God says, oh, Israel, you need land. Those people have it. Go kill them and take the land. Take their land. That would be that would be tyranny. That would be that would be evil. God would never do that. So he is sending his people against them because of these sins. Uh, what was the other one? Leviticus. Le Leviticus 18, I think, is a very important text that helps us, that explains in more detail what is going on here. The introduction, especially, is important. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do in the land. You, you shall. This Bible is interesting. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. And you shall not do as they do, do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. So. Uh, remember, don't behave like uh, like the Egyptians do, did, and don't behave like the Canaanites are behaving, the land to which I am sending you. Uh, you shall not walk in their statutes, that's in their ways. <clears throat> you, shall, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them, he shall live with them. She shall live by them. I am the Lord. And now we ask, well, Lord, well, what were, what were the Canaanites doing that you're saying don't do what they do? What were they doing? Well, the rest of Leviticus 18 and 19 explains exactly what they were doing. That's that whole list, that horrible list of sins that you get in Leviticus 18 is exactly the behavior of the Canaanites. And he's saying, that's what I do not want you to be like. So what are they doing? Well, the first several verses of chapter 18 from 6 on is all to do with incest. Okay, Do not go near a family member and so forth, because that's what the Canaanites do. Then in uh, verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. That's what the Canaanites are doing. Adultery. Uh, you shall not <clears throat> give any of your children and uh, as a sacrifice and offer them to Molech. That's what the Canaanites are doing. And so profane the name of your Lord. Children to, to, to sacrificing their children to the God of Molech. You shall not lie with a male as with, as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's what the Canaanites are practicing, homosexuality. And you shall not lie with an animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. And I, I'll just stop there. That's what the Canaanites are practicing. Okay? And if you read Leviticus, it'll say that not only is God angry with the um, Canaanites, but the land, it's ready to vomit them out. They have caused, they have given the earth an upset stomach with all of their corruptions, that it is ready to vomit them out. And here's the final thing about this point. God is not a, a respecter of persons. And so what he says to his people is, and if you do those things, I will kick you out of the land as well. Don't think just because you're my people and I did that to the Canaanites, that you're, you're safe. No. If Israel does the same things, 
Israel is going to get the same treatment. And guess what? They did all of these sins. Mm -hmm. Okay, read the book of Kings. Uh, Ahaz is sacrificing his son. Ammon is sacrificing his son. These are on the walls of Jerusalem. They are doing all of these sins. And what does God do? God brings the Babylonian to wipe out the Israelites, including the children. Mm. Okay? They take the children and dash them against the, um, the rocks. And that is God's judgment upon his own people. And the text actually says, I, I remember in, in, when we were studying First and Second Kings, that the text actually says, you know, you have become just like the Canaanites. You, like, exactly. It, it makes that explicit. Yeah. yeah. So it's for judgment. And it has nothing to do with the race and so forth. And what I would say is, to apply this, I think we are living in that period of grace, that, that 400 years. Because one day it is happening. Christ is returning. And when he comes this time, it is not as a gentle baby born in a, sta uh, a stable. He is coming to execute vengeance and wrath upon the earth. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, who you are. If you are not found in his ark, you will be destroyed. Well, explain, explain when you say vengeance and wrath, that sounds pretty harsh. Like, so, like, is that just, is, is, is just God's kind of reactive anger to, to this world or, or, or what is that? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a response. Uh, it's the response of a moral and ethical uh, character. If uh, a person is a moral and ethical character, they recoil and get angry and are, are, are disturbed by that which is not ethical, mm. right? If you're not ethical, then everything goes. That's fine. But if you are a, a moral and ethical God and holy as God is, then that which violates morality and ethics and holiness is, uh, is disgusting. It's an abomination. But it's not this impulsive reaction flaring up of anger kind of no thing. which is why he gives them so much time to he gave the he gave the period the, the people of noah's time 125 years hmm. to change their ways after he said to noah i'm going to bring the judgment upon them he waited 125 years before he did that and with uh, with abraham he waited 400 years and with us it's i don't know how long but eventually judgment comes so I just realized it's eight twenty, so that's good. Good So uh, we had lots of time for uh, for for questions, and already we're we're getting questions, and we have actually been addressing some of the questions that are online. So uh, we got a solid ten minutes to, uh, to to address some of your other questions. So uh, say your question, uh, Terry, and then I'll repeat it for for those who are online. Okay, so Terry's just reiterating so, Ivan's point about the family. Yeah. Right, yeah. In, in the book of Daniel. Okay, cool. Cool. Questions? Chris? Uh, Hmm. So, I think that, um, you know, that's 
I mean, there's a lot of things going on. Mm. There was nothing for me. Right. Right. Yeah. So Chris is just just reiterating about the, the Canaanite sins. Yeah. God was patient. Right. Good. Good. Yep. Good point. Any other questions? <laughs> Actually, just going back to the problem today, racism, and you spoke about colonialism in the beginning, just when I actually hear more about the people like some LGBTQ communities, not only in North America, but in Brazil, right? Mm -hmm. The colonization, the colonialism. Yeah. So from from uh, some colonial impulses into South America and Central America, and so how how so the question would be like is this not kind of a and kind of a darker expression of Christianity in 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 terms of the colonialism? Yeah, um, um, no, the only the only uh, you probably are able to answer this question better, but that word colony is very interesting because in Philippians. Uh, uh, two or three, I can't, can't remember now exactly. Paul describes his ministry, what he is doing, using that exact term. Uh, the Greek term is polytuema. What he says he is doing is he's going about the Roman Empire, creating colonies. But uh, what is a colony? A colony is really uh, uh, an, uh, an outer society that is created by an empire to reflect the empire, to become the empire's image right? The, the colony uh, represents and reflects the values and laws and behaviors and all of that statutes of the empire, the, the, the mother home, uh, the mother country, wherever. And so what Paul is saying is he's going about the Roman Empire creating colonies of heaven. That's his strategy. Then he actually uses that word. That is little representations of heaven that operate under uh, the uh, operate like and under the rules of the mothers of that colony, which is God's uh, God's heaven, and 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 operates that way. So, uh, the, the the bringing that back to colonialism, what happened here? There is, I think, good and bad in what happened in the colonial movement. There was tremendous abuse that took place, but there was also, and if, if we want perspective, we have to be, we have to face these facts. There were also many good things that came out of that. But, and I'm a recipient of that. In Sri Lanka, we were colonized first by the Portuguese. That's where I get my uh, surname from. Then came the Dutch, and they left their imprint, and there's a huge Dutch uh, population and, and all of that. And then came the British, and they colonized Sri Lanka, and they gave us some tremendous institutions of um, law and education and stuff like that. And that's the system in which I was raised. And I'm very thankful for that. Were there excesses? Did they take too much tea from the country back to their own, uh, uh, back to their own land and sell it and whatnot? Of course there was, but it wasn't just rape and pillage and take everything back. That was not what happened with them, probably with some other empires that, that, that might've happened. But even with the, um, South America with the Sp uh, Spaniards and so forth, there was a lot of good that they brought as well. And I know this is probably going to 
uh, explored some heads, but we need perspective on this stuff. And these native countries weren't these wonderful, um, idealistic, loving, uh, totally gentle and nature honoring societies. Okay, they were just as corrupt as everybody else, enslaving and killing and sacrificing and abusing each other, uh, just as much as every, every anybody else did. Because humans are corrupted, and sometimes these these colonialists came and they put an end to all of those great excesses, like what the British did in India with the um, the widow burning and uh, child sacrifice and all that kind of stuff that went on. So I can give thanks for the good things that they did. And I can I can say that was wrong and that should not have happened. And I and I think, you know, the, again, repeat what I said last week, the devil's in the details, actually, or maybe God's in the detail. I mean, but the because each each place is different. So I've studied the history of colonialism in different parts of the world, and it a, a lot of it depends on the country doing the colonizing. A lot of it depends on when it is happening. So the British gunboats off the coast of um of china and hong kong in order to introduce the opium trade into china force them to to uh to deal with opium is is problematic and mm. and what would often happen is you had um is you had christians who would say okay this is bad this is wrong and you did have christians um guys like uh lord shaftesbury uh the seventh seventh earl of uh, shaftesbury in in parliament saying this is this is evil and just denouncing it in the name of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, but you also have missionaries saying, okay, well, it's open. We're going to go in and we're going to at least tell them about who Jesus is. And people on the receiving side are confused. Wait a minute, you just blew up our place. And now you're telling us about the love of Jesus. This doesn't make a lot of sense. And so you have to clarify, you know, what is a cross and what is a flag? And at times they do get conflated, but other times they don't. The other strange thing in all this is that many of the countries that were colonized have held on to Christianity, whereas the colonizing countries have long jettisoned it. I think of countries like Fiji, um, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, there's many, many countries that that you would think there's no way this is an oppressor's faith, but it, it becomes um, indigenized. Mm-hmm. Um, and the irony is that the places that were doing the uh, the colonizing, these, these places now, like like in Fiji or like in Nigeria, um, they're they're going back to these colonizing countries and they're sharing the gospel. So I know that in 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 England, for example, there are Nigerian churches, mm-hmm. and they meet together, and the big conversation is what is the best strategy to share the gospel with these lost white British people, right? There's also Nigerian churches in Eastern Europe and they're being, and they're saying these things. It's like, do you know why communism existed in Eastern Europe? Do you know why, uh, um, you know, it, it was behind the Iron Curtain? Well, the communists were the only people who could build stadiums big enough to hold our churches. Wow. And so this is the stuff that's going on. So it's, it's, it's and one more thing, and we touched upon this uh, last week, is that there are major studies that show that, especially in the area of Protestant missions into various countries, which may be seen from the outside as colonizing or whatever. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, you know, build your church like a like a Western church rather than paying attention to the culture of the time. There's a lot of those those issues along the way for sure. 
But wherever you found Protestant missions, those are the places where you find most um, evidence of democracy in the world, which is an interesting uh, correlation between Protestant missions and democracy. So again, there's, it, I think, um, in the 15th century, uh, with the Spanish and the Portuguese, I think they did do a real number on a lot of these places. Um, but again, yeah, if you're looking at uh, the Incas and the Aztecs, it's not like they were this idyllic, peace-loving uh, people. There's a lot of dark things going on there too. So you get the the sin, the sin of humanity at play on both sides. So anyhow, that, I don't know if that answers, but we can we can talk more about that. I, I'd love to talk more about that. Yeah. <clears throat> There's an interesting story about uh, Cortez and uh, Montezuma. I guess uh, uh, Montezuma observed, they were, they were having talks, Cortez and his um, Spaniards were having talks with Montezuma. And uh, Montezuma observed at one time Cortez taking communion. <clears throat> and Montezuma asked the, the, the translator that was translating, what, 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 is, what, what, what is that guy doing? And the translator said, he's drinking the blood of his god. And Montezuma said, tell me more about that. And so the, the, the translator explained that. And Montezuma said, that's the God we need. This guy's God gives his blood for, for, for them to drink. Our gods want to drink our blood. Mm. And that was an amazing revelation. Mm. Right? Now, Cortez was not a happy guy or a, no. or a nice guy. <laughs> But there, in that one instance, and this is this is actually um, uh, recorded in, uh, uh, can't remember exactly the book, but I can give it to you later. That story, which is really quite powerful. That's no, good. Time for one more question, one more doozy. I better be good, Mike. Okay. Uh, so when did Christianity become a white religion? Is the question. Okay. <laughs> did it ever? Yeah. I don't know. If it, I mean, you certainly have in the 19th century with the peak of the British Empire, um, the conflation of sword of of um, of uh, sword and the cross, right? And so you had a lot of colonization happening. I mean, the British Empire in the 19th century is was, was the line the, the sun never set on the British Empire. There, it 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 was, was it true, was, and it was true because it was it was right around the world. And so I think that would probably, I mean, you would have the time with the, uh, with the Spanish and the Portuguese uh, colonization, which was, you know, a couple hundred years earlier. But I would say the way people, when they ask that question, is usually having something to do with British colonization and the legacy of that. Um, combine that with its impact on the states and the growth of Christianity in the United States and the missionary movement and the missionary impulse that comes out of the United States between those two factors um, probably has a big say. But again, that ship has sailed. I mean, um, the number of, um, of white, non-Hispanic, uh, white uh, Christians um, was it by 2050? It'll be like maybe 15 or 20 percent of the population. Uh, most, you know, they're, they're, they're the greatest phenomenon in the history of the world. How's that? 
The greatest phenomenon in the history of the world, according to Philip Jenkins, is the conversion of Africa. And he says it's the greatest sociological phenomenon because in Africa in the year 1900, there were 9 million Christians. By the end of the 20th century, there are 360 million Christians. And that is considered the greatest social change in the history of the world. Not religious change, just social change. It eclipses communism. It eclipses Islam. And he says, if you want to talk about the 20th century, what is the 20th century all about? It's not about Islam. It's not even about communism. It is about the conversion of Africa. And Africa is, 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 uh, Christianity has grown they're greater, greater and faster than, than we've ever seen in the history of the world. And so where Christianity is growing right now is, is South America, Africa, and East Asia. Where it's not growing is Canada. <laughs> you know, it's still in the United States, which is interesting. It's, it's still growing there, but uh, in Europe is dying very quickly. The only hope I've ever said for, you know, because people say, well, what about Christian Canada? Let's get back to our Christian roots. And I'm like, okay, if you want to get back to your Christian roots, the only way to get back to Christian roots in Canada is through immigration. Because the people who are coming to Canada, they're more likely to be Christian than guys like me. And so um, our hope, yeah, and, and you know, the, which country is the, the greatest missions, um, missionary sending country in the world? Do you know what it is? South Korea. South Korea sends more missionaries per capita than any other country in the world. And so, and and one of their areas of of, of mission that they're really focusing in on and having great fruit is missionary work to First Nations groups in Canada and certainly to to the Inuit in Canada. Yeah. Anyhow, so we can talk more about this. This is interesting stuff. And and the moment we start talking about history, I get pretty excited. So... um, let me uh, close our time in prayer, and uh, and then if you want, you can linger around for a little bit oh, yeah. if you have some yeah. more questions. But uh, so, and next week, remember, we have a special guest uh, from Regent College. Does everything really happen for a reason? We'll talk about the providence of God and our free will and prayer and all sorts of things. It'll be fun. Okay, Lord, thank you for your grace, and thank you for uh, man. Those not just one hard question. We did uh, like a hundred hard questions tonight. And uh, these are difficult questions. And so help us to keep wrestling, keep keep, uh, diving in, knowing that all truth is God's truth. All truth is your truth. And we do not need to be afraid of hard questions. And um, we need to bring hard questions to to the table um, because you can handle it. And so I thank you for each person here tonight online and in person. We pray that you, um, for those who are leaving here in person, that you keep them somewhat dry on the way home and uh, safety as they head home. And so we commit our lives to you and we look forward to gathering again next week. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.